0: You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Crusades, inquisitions, jihads, fatwas, suicide bombers, and abortion clinic gunmen. Humans once believed that God commanded them to massacre Midianites, stone prostitutes, execute homosexuals, slay heretics, and infidels. Throw Protestants out of windows, withhold medicine from dying children, and crash airplanes into skyscrapers. Physicist and philosopher Victor Stinger said it uh, similar but very short. He just said, Science flies you to the moon, religion flies you into buildings. Sam Harris, another one of the new atheists, said this If I could wave a magic wand and get rid of either rape or religion, I wouldn't hesitate to get rid of religion. I think more people are dying as a result of our religious myths than as a result of any other ideology. And obviously for many of you who have uh, followed anything like this, you'll know that Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens have made similar arguments as well. And so as we come to this question this morning of doesn't religion cause violence, there's a sense in which it's less of a question and more of an accusation or an assumption You see, I think most people asking this question are asking it because they already assume that it's true. They don't even uh, question it anymore. They are convinced that absolutely religion causes violence. And part of the reason for that is because, again, it's been repeated over and over again by the New Atheist and by those in the media. And it's been repeated so often that it has become, I think, a kind of slogan in our culture. And so the question for us this morning is, is it true? Does religion cause violence? One of the challenges in answering a question like this is that the word religion encompasses a whole lot of different ideologies and worldviews. And I think uh, one of the things that happened sort of post 9-11 is that obviously in that moment the world woke up to Islamic extremism and violence. And so as to not uh, single them out exclusively... Christianity and Judaism have, uh, I think in particular, have been thrown into the mix as part of the problem. That's why in the last 10 to 15 years or so, you've heard a lot of questions and a lot of accusations around things like the Crusades or violence in the Old Testament or other things like that would, that would lead you to believe that all religions are the same and they all lead to violence. Now, obviously, uh, I'm going to be super limited time-wise in what I can do here this morning in regards to responding to this question. But one of the things I want to just say up front is this, that yes, terrible, horrible, violent things have been done in the name of religion. And that's true of basically every major religion, whether it's Christianity or Islam, uh, which are the two most people point to. However, though, it's even true of a religion like Buddhism. I mean, a lot of people assume and claim that the, the Eastern religions are, are peaceful, that they're not violent. But, but all you have to do is to watch uh, a movie like Martin Scorsese's film Silence, uh, which if you don't know what that is, it's based uh, on a true story, uh, which is about a 17th century Japanese Buddhist government where they, they literally killed thousands and thousands of Christians. Or if you don't want to watch that, and, and hopefully you don't, you know, you don't want to spend two hours watching a violent movie, but um, if you don't want to do that, you could instead read the New York Times article entitled, Why Are We Surprised When Buddhists Are Violent? And that article goes on to talk about all of the violence that has happened in places like, uh, in Buddhist countries like Sri Lanka or Myanmar or even Thailand. And so again, I, as we start here, I just want to be upfront: yes. Terrible, horrible violence has been done in the name of God and in the name of religion. But since, I'm not a, uh, since I am not a Christian and not a Buddhist or a Muslim, I'm going to mainly focus on the big accusations that are leveled at Christianity. And the two main ones that I have heard personally and the ones that I feel like get brought up the most in these type of discussions about violence are number one, either violence in the Old Testament and specifically the extermination of the Canaanites And the other one is the Crusades. And so let's take some time here and let's look at these two because, again, most likely you have heard someone bring them up as an accusation, as an objection to Christianity. And so starting with violence in the Old Testament, and again, I'm going to mainly time-wise here focus on the conquest of Cana and the supposed genocide that took place there. Um, and in case maybe you're like, is this really like a thing? Are people wondering about this? Let me share with you this quote from Richard Dawkins. Uh, I believe it's in his book, The God Delusion. He said this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, racist infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilental, megalomaniacal, I don't even know, megalomaniacal, sadiomasticistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, I'm pretty sure, I don't know what half of those words mean, and I'm pretty sure Dawkins made up a few of them. <clears throat> but either way, I take it that he is not a fan of the God of the Bible, and particularly as he's revealed in the Old Testament. And so, is Dawkins right? Does this describe the God of the Bible, the God that we read about in the Old Testament? Well, one of the main questions, I think, around all of this is, is really the question of why did God command Israel to wipe out completely the Canaanites? Now, Dawkins would have you believe, from that quote, that God did that because he is a racist ethnic cleanser who commands genocide. But is that why God commanded Israel to attack and to fight against the Canaanites? Well? The simple answer to that question is absolutely not. The command to fight against the Canaanites had nothing to do with their race or their ethnicity, but rather had everything to do with God using Israel to judge the Canaanites for their sin. You see, when you read the Old Testament, one of the things you see is that the Canaanites were among some of the most wicked and evil nations and cultures that ever existed. Not only did they allow or accept, as a culture, wicked behavior, they actually included it as part of their worship to their gods. Whether it was things like temple prostitution or other forms of sexual immorality like bestiality or incest, or or whether it was something as evil as child sacrifice, as was the case with the god of Molech. I mean, they would literally, in worship to Molech, take a baby or a small child and throw them into a fire as an act of worship. You see, when you read the Old Testament law and you see all of these commands, some of which seem hard to relate to, and you think, why would God include that? The reason God included that in the Old Testament law is because many of them are in direct contrast to what the Canaanites were doing. And God, when he called out Israel, he was calling them to be separate, to be different than the nations that were around them. I mean, why would God have to command Israel to not have sex with animals? Well, he had to do that because Canaanites were having sex with animals. And so again, I just want to reiterate here that in no way was the reason God commanded Israel to destroy the Canaanites in relation to their race or their ethnicity. It was always because of the injustice and the wickedness that they were committing. In fact, that's exactly what God tells uh, Israel in Deuteronomy 9. In that chapter, God is basically like, look, in case you all get confused, I just want to let you know very clearly the reason I am having you go in to, to defeat the Canaanites. The reason I'm having you drive them out, and, and look, here's the thing, it's not because you're so awesome, um, because you're not. In fact, in that chapter, God reminds them of their failure where they worship the golden calf. And so, again, it's not because of Israel's integrity or their goodness. No, it's because of how wicked the Canaanites are. And the thing about that is that God was extremely patient with the Canaanites. It wasn't like they, you know, they messed up once or had a few bad years. No, God in Genesis 15, when he is promising this land to to Abraham and to his descendants, he lets Abraham know, look, you are not going to inherit this land for 400 years. And the reason for that is because he was giving the Canaanites 400 years to repent of their sin. And yet they in no way, uh, in no way did they do that. You see, God, when you read uh, the Bible, one of the things about his character that is very clear, that clearly revealed is that he is slow to anger. He is a patient God. He gives warnings before he judges. And even when he does judge, it's only after a prolonged period where people have been unrepentant. I mean, with the story of something like Sodom and Gomorrah, you see, uh, in that story, God was willing even to spare that city if only there was a small fraction of righteous people. And yet, basically, none could be found. God does spare Lot and his family, but that that's it. And even then, you know, the whole story, Lot's wife looks back, and boom, she's gone, you know? Another story that uh, is similar in some ways is that uh, the story of Jonah. I mean, that story, if you... Pay attention to the story of Jonah, it is an incredible story. You see, God in that story, He out of His mercy sends Jonah kicking and screaming to the city of Nineveh. Now, if you just look into the history of Nineveh, it was a wicked place, and yet God sends Jonah to go and to warn them and to call them to repent. And yet, after again, you know, the whole story with the fish and all of that, Jonah eventually goes and he preaches, and the people do repent. And Jonah is mad about that because he himself is probably a racist and doesn't like the Ninevites. And here's what he says in chapter 4. He's complaining to God. Here's what he says. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. You see, Jonah's all upset that God was merciful because he knew that if if God extended them mercy, there was a chance they might repent and and God would relent from destroying them. God actually finishes the book a few verses later by rebuking Jonah for this attitude, and he says this, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Now, I don't know why God includes cattle in there. I mean, maybe the the whole Chick-fil-A cow is onto something, right? Like, we need to be repenting of those cheeseburgers. I don't know. But the point of the verse is simply this. God is saying, look, Jonah, there are 120,000 people in that city who are ignorant of me. Shouldn't I have pity on them? Shouldn't I have compassion? Doesn't my mercy compel me to warn them and to give them a chance to repent? Now look, I I recognize that there's still a lot of tension and things about all of this that make us deeply uncomfortable. I mean, the reality is, is that God did, in fact, command Israel in regards to the Canaanites and this one very specific occasion to kill everybody, including men, women, and children. And look, as a father with little kids, that bothers me. It emotionally troubles me. And yet I realize... I. Can accept that God has not only the right, but the obligation to judge sin, and He has the sovereignty to do it when and how He chooses. I mean, when it comes to humanity and to humanity being judged, there are no innocent bystanders. The Bible is very clear, and observing uh, human nature is very clear that all have sinned, that all deserve wrath and judgment. I mean, we live in a culture right now that longs for justice, that talks about justice all of the time. And yet the truth is, is you can't have justice without judgment. But somehow our culture doesn't seem to get that. And and because of that, when we see God render judgment as in the case with the Canaanites, there is all of this outcry. And yet the ironic thing is, is that it's only because of God that we even have a knowledge and a sense of what justice looks like. I really like how our very own Cory Bacher put it in his paper on this topic. He wrote this. Though on the surface, Yahweh's commands to exterminate the Canaanites may leave us emotionally uncomfortable. We must realize that we really do want a God who hates sin and punishes evil justly. No one wants a God or an authority figure who is not angered by evil and does not execute justice. In fact, the problem of evil and the injustice of our governments anger all people more than anything else in our lives. The desire for justice is a foundational to the core of every human being. As the creator of all things, Yahweh is sovereign over all creation and has the right to execute his justice in any way he sees fit. The human perspective is not always the divine and right perspective. We might not agree with his form of justice, but our very sense of justice on which we base our accusations of him comes from him as our creator. If he had not created us with his sense of justice, then we would, have, we would not have a sense that what he was doing was unjust. As sinners, we cannot even begin to have any concept of the magnitude of our sin from the perspective of a holy and righteous God. We have no right as sinners who hurt and destroy others on a regular basis to accuse Yahweh, a righteous God who has no sin and loves perfectly, that he is unjust. With the very concept and sense of justice he created us to have. Now again, there's so much more that we could say on this topic. And I'm sure for some of you, you're you're still maybe not convinced. but, But to that, I would just simply say this. There has been a lot written on this topic by people that are way smarter than me. And so I would just encourage you, if you are still struggling with that, if you still have doubts, if you're just like, I, I just don't know, I don't know how I could worship a God who, who commands things like that, then I would just encourage you to study. In fact, Corey's paper would be a great place to start. You can find it on his website, knowingthebible.net. It was a wonderful article. So, I, again, encourage you, study it. There are good answers to these questions, but for time's sake, let's move on now and look at the Crusades. So what exactly were the crusades and what exactly happened? Well, in short, what people are referring to when they use the word crusades is a series of wars and conflicts between uh, Christians in Europe and Muslims in the Middle East, which took place between the years of 1095 and 1291. And the conflict mainly resolved around gaining or maintaining control of Israel. Now, the popular... uh, uh, The popular... In uh, common character of the story that is told of the crusades today is that european christians out of nowhere and unprovoked attacked these poor peace-loving muslims and tried to convert them by force and in the process they looted and stole from them and ultimately took their land i mean how many of you have heard that narrative or that version of the story anybody yeah just, that's what happened right So is that what happened? Well, actually, no. For one, the wars were not out of nowhere, nor were they unprovoked. In fact, the reality was is that from the time of Islam's founding in the 7th century until 1095 when the First Crusade was started, Muslims had already attacked and drove out around two-thirds of the Christian world. Crusade scholar Thomas Madden describes the period between Islam's founding and the First Crusade like this. With enormous energy, the warriors of Islam struck out against the Christians shortly after Muhammad's death. They were extremely successful. Palestine, Syria, and Egypt, once the most heavily Christian areas in the world, quickly succumbed. By the 8th century, Muslim armies had conquered all of Christian North Africa and Spain. In the 11th century, the Seljuk Turks conquered Asia Minor, modern Turkey, which had been Christian since the time of St. Paul. And really, it's that last uh, attack there that Madden mentions that became the catalyst for the First Crusade. And what I mean by that is that after the Seljuk Turks attacked uh, and took over Asia Minor, the Byzantine emperor, who was a Christian, begged Pope Urban II for help. And it was only then that Rome responded by sending people to fight. Historian Robert Louis Wilkins describes the Crusades like this. He says they were a Christian counter-offense, Against the occupation of lands that had been Christian for centuries before the arrival of Islam. Thomas Madden agrees with that and describes them this way: The Crusades were in every way a defensive war. They were the West's belated response to Muslim conquest of fully two-thirds of the Christian world. Now you might be thinking, wow, that's not the story that I heard. That's not what, what I what people talk about. Well, you would be right, and that's why Madden has also stated that the Crusades are one of the most misunderstood events in Western history. Recent popular histories of the Crusades have recycled myths long ago dispelled by historians. Now, part of the reason for that, I'm assuming, is just due to ignorance. But there's no doubt that part of the reason for the misinformation and the mischaracterization is very intentional. You see, if something gets repeated often enough by enough different people, it doesn't take long before people stop questioning the truth or the accuracy of what's being said. It's like a long game of the, or it's like a long uh, version of the game telephone, where somewhere along the line, someone changed the words, and next thing you know, what's being passed on is nothing like the truth. In fact, sometimes it's the exact opposite of the truth. I mean, many have pointed out that for hundreds and hundreds of years after the Crusades, Muslims never even mentioned them, let alone complained about them. Former Muslim Nabil Qureshi summed up the Crusades like this in his book, No God But One. According to Crusade scholar Riley Smith, the Muslims looked back on the Crusades with indifference and complacency. In their eyes, they had been the outright winners. The first history of the Crusades in Arabic which appeared in 1865, had been a Christian one. Christians had to invent an Arabic word for the Crusades, as Muslims apparently did not give much thought to them until the turn of the 20th century. Considering the historical realities, the common Muslim perspective of the Crusades, the the perspective I inherited, is a modern invention. The narrative of an offensive crusade against peaceful Muslims, along with the overtones of Ridley Scott's The Kingdom of Heaven movie and John Esposito's Five Centuries of Peaceful Coexistence, turn out to be fanciful slants based on motivations other than history. The reality is is that the crusades were launched in defense of the Byzantine emperor after two-thirds of the Christian world had been conquered by centuries of Muslim attacks. Muslims understood this and held no grudge against the Crusaders until modern times when post-colonial narratives came into vogue. Now, with that said, though, when it comes to the Crusades, there were absolutely unbelievable, horrible things done by some of the European Christians that went. So I don't want to skate over that. I don't want to deny that. I mean, innocent women and children were killed. Even at one point, they slaughtered and committed violence against a group of Jews. Not only that, though, but in the Fourth Crusade, the Latin Western Christians attacked their fellow Eastern Christians in the city of Constantinople. Now, apparently, that was somewhat in response to an earlier attack of Eastern Orthodox Christians on Western Christians. But either way, it is appalling and it is unbiblical. You see, look, here's the thing. Both people claiming to be Christians or or cultural Christians or people who are from a Christian nation and actual Christians have done horrible, violent things in the name of Christ. I don't deny that. I can't deny that. It is something that is deeply shameful and it is a black eye on the history of the Christian church. Whether it's the Crusades, the Inquisition, Northern Ireland, or whatever else, Christians and so-called Christians have done Awful things. However, though, I really appreciate what Robbie Zacharias once said in a response to this. He wrote this. In terms of religious wars, you have to weigh out the question. Is the person doing the horrific acts doing so in keeping with their religious worldview or in violation of it? When Jesus was being arrested and Peter cut off the high priest's servant's ear, Jesus rebuked Peter and he told him to put the sword away and he healed the servant. When an atheist kills someone, it could be argued that they are keeping in step with their worldview or philosophy, whereas for a Christian, it would be in direct violation of it. You should never judge a belief by its abuse. Now, if you remember at the beginning of this talk, when I first introduced the question of doesn't religion cause violence, one of the things that I said was that it seems to be less of a question and more of an accusation. And so in light of that, I think the assumption there is that um, in the absence of religion, there is no violence. And so I just want to challenge that and ask, is that true? In the absence of religion, does violence disappear? In other words, was Bertrand Russell right? Was religion a dragon that was preventing us from moving into this golden age? Well, I have no proof that Bertrand Russell ever retracted that statement, but given how the 20th century unfolded he probably should have i mean russell claimed that religion was the fundamental cause of war and that only if it was slain would war and conflict disappear well let's see here russell made that statement in 1930 and historians have said that between 1917 that since 1917 over 100 million people have been killed by communist dictatorships all of which have at the heart of their ideology a worldview uh, of atheism. Between the 60 million or so killed in communist China, to the 15 to 20 million killed in communist Russia, to the millions killed in Cambodia with Pol Pot, you are talking about a staggering number of people murdered and killed and none of it was motivated or justified by religion. I mean, there is a myth out there, and maybe you've heard it, that says that religion is the cause of most wars in human history. But actually, there has been some hard secular research done around this, and it was put into a a three-volume study of all major wars in history. And what the research shows is that less than 7% of all wars could have religion as their cause, and even then, there were other factors. You see, last week, Chris mentioned the song, uh, the John Lennon song, Imagine, which says, Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Now, Oxford University professor and mathematician John Lennox, in an interview a few years ago, uh, he was trying to answer this question of doesn't religion lead to violence, and he said this, the new atheist strategy is to blame everything on God and exonerate atheism. I've spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe and Russia and there is no excuse for one death by the uh, one death in the Inquisition. But I think the total figure of those put to death by the Spanish Inquisition was about 800 people. Stalin got rid of about 60 million. Dawkins sings a song, Imagine a World Without Religion, by John Lennon, but I often say to people, I'm not John Lennon, I'm John Lennox, and my song is Imagine a World Without Stalin, Hitler, or Pol Pot. My major criticism of the new atheists is their lack of balance. They don't study Christian history to actually gauge the proportion of the deaths in the name of Christianity. Other religions will have to speak for themselves. There is no excuse for any of those deaths, but when you look at the atheist side, it is responsible for death in the multi-millions. It wasn't Christianity that made the 20th century run with blood. It's their ignorance of that that I find frightening, because I expect them not to know much theology, but for them to airbrush out the 20th century is inexcusable, particularly for people who pretend to any rational scholarship. Now, if we go back to the end of that Ravi Zacharias quote we looked at earlier when he said this, when an atheist kills someone, it could be argued that they are keeping in step with their worldview or their philosophy, whereas for a Christian, it would be in direct violation of it. You should never judge a belief by its abuse. Now, so far, if you've been tracking with me and what I've said, and I know some of you are like, dude, you lost me like a long time ago. That's okay. Try to hang in here. All I've done at this point is basically established that violence is a universal problem, right? Violence is everywhere. It's in atheism, it's in Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, all of it. It has been seen, unfortunately, and probably will continue to be, violence has been seen and will continue to be seen by those who identify as religious. And unfortunately, that will include people who name the name of Christ. However, though, we have also seen that doing away with religion or the absence of religion does nothing to curb or restrain violence. In fact, I think it could be argued, and I think it has been shown historically, that it actually increases violence. So again, violence is a universal problem. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time here this morning is to just look at these two different worldviews. Again, I don't have time to, to speak to other religions and other worldviews about whether or not they lead to violence. So all I want to do is to look at Christianity, and I want to look at atheism, and, well, and I want to see which one of these worldviews, when followed and obeyed, leads to more violence and which one restrains or curbs violence. And so I'll start with atheism, and then I'll finish with Christianity. So what exactly is the core tenets or beliefs of an atheistic worldview? Now, I know they would object to me using the word belief since they claim that they're facts, but the reality is is that they can't prove them. But the first core, or the main uh, foundational uh, claim, is that there is no God. Now, in order to embrace and justify that, you have to then be able to explain how we got here, right? Now, the main way that an atheist explains how we got here is through the process of evolution, and by that, they mean a mindless unguided natural process now they used to be able to claim that the universe always existed and that helped them somewhat make their case but since we now know through science and through the bible actually that the universe had a beginning they've had to make up new theories to explain about how we got here and right now the best i can tell the leading theory is the multiverse theory now i don't have time to to get into that and you can look it up honestly it's not that convincing. Uh, Although it's better than Dawkins' belief in the flying spaghetti monster, uh, which, again, I don't have time to explain. You can look that up as well. But basically, at the end of the day, atheists have had to come up with a theory to explain how we got here, and they have to do so without having God as part of the equation. Now, because God is not a part of the equation... And because as humans, uh, we exist through this natural, unguided process of mutation and natural selection, we are here essentially by luck. And as a result, our lives have no intrinsic meaning and they have no greater purpose other than what we make up or define for ourselves. And not only is there no meaning or purpose, but there's also, because of that, no objective moral values just touched on this last week you see because without god without a moral lawgiver, without a moral standard you cannot have objective moral laws the best thing you can have is subjective morals let a, uh, where it's kind of like let the majority decide what is right and wrong but even then you can't honestly justify them I mean, that's why the moral argument for the existence of God continues to be one of the strongest arguments for the existence of God. It, can, it continues to be one of, if not the, strongest argument for the existence of God. Now, because that is part of an atheist worldview, it's hard to see how it could restrain or curb violence in our society. I mean, Chris talked about that last week. Most religions have within them a correction mechanism to, to curb violence but not, not so with atheism i mean when we observe the natural world when we see you know turn on pbs or bbc when we see a lion hunt down and tear apart a gazelle no one maybe pita aside you know calls for a court case right it's natural this is just what happens the the strong eats the weak it's natural order and so if that's true on what basis do i have for telling you to not be violent? Well, none other than I don't like it. It bothers me. I mean, here's the thing. Atheists are trying to distance themselves from social Darwinism now. And they're doing that because they realize what it leads to. It leads to places like Nazi Germany. It leads to eugenics and racism. And yet, the problem is is they don't really have a solid argument or justification for why not. I mean, that's what their worldview leads to. I came across this article this week in which it talks about how Dawkins himself is now arguing we need an anti-Darwinian society. And the reason he's arguing that is because at an event at Kennesaw State University, someone there asked him, they said uh, they were challenging him on his support for same-sex marriage, even though it violates the evolutionary principle. And Dawkins responded this way. He said, I don't care what's against the evolution principle. I'm all for going against the evolution principle. Evolution by natural selection is the explanation for why we exist. It's not something to guide our lives on in our society. Study your Darwinism for two reasons because it explains why you're here, and the second reason is in order to learn what to avoid in setting up a society. What we need is a truly anti Darwinian society. Anti-Darwinian in the sense that we don't wish to live in a society where the weakest go to the wall, where the strongest suppress the weak, and even kill the weak. We, I at least, do not wish to live in that kind of society. I want to live in the, soci- the sort of society where we take care of the sick, where we take care of the weak, take care of the oppressed, which is a very anti-Darwinian society. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that fascinating. Fascinating. I mean, here is Richard Dawkins, the loudest mouthed one in all of the new atheist group, and he is appealing to moral vision. He's appealing to a a vision of a world where justice uh, reigns, where the weak are taken care of, where the sick are, are taken care of, and yet his worldview has no grounds for that. And actually, if this was lived out based on his worldview, it would result in the demise of the human species. Again, according to what he believes about how we got here. Now, I want to contrast all of that now with what Christianity teaches. You see, I think Christianity, unlike any other worldview, explains the reason why violence exists. And it also gives us the resources to overcome it. And not only that, but it gives us a hope of a world without it. You see, when you open the Bible, you see that God created a perfect world And the word that best describes what that world was like is the word shalom. Now shalom is a Hebrew word that means wholeness or harmony or peace. Now Adam and Eve, they fractured that peace when they chose to rebel against God by eating the fruit. And basically the the first major event that, that resulted from that is their son Cain, in a moment of jealousy, committed a terrible act of violence against his brother, which ended up leading to his death. Now, if you keep reading the Genesis story, you see that that God, in an act of mercy, protects Cain. He spares his life, but he sends him away. And Cain goes and builds a city and has a family and all of that. But at the end of chapter 4, which is the chapter where we read about uh, Cain slaying Abel, you get one of Cain's descendants, a man named uh, Lamech, and he writes a poem in which he says this, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So we see here that violence and revenge was starting to be commonplace very quickly after the fall. Now, if you keep reading in Genesis, by the time you get to chapter 6 with the story of Noah, you see that the world is full of wickedness and specifically violence. And as a result, God uh, begins to say that he's sorry that he made mankind. He says he regrets it. In fact, what he says about mankind is that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. So, what we see here through this is that Christianity explains why, not only sin, but even specifically why violence exists. It exists because of the fall, and the problem is our hearts now have this bent, our hearts have this inclination to do evil, to be selfish. And when we can't get our way, violence is a natural response. When somebody uh, wrongs us, we want revenge, and often we do it through violence. Now, so much, I think, of the rest of the Old Testament story is just proving that theory to be true. That theory that the human heart is bent on evil all of the time. And that's ultimately why you get a verse like Ezekiel thirty six twenty six near the end of the Old Testament, which says this. This is God speaking, and he says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." You see, because of, of our sinful heart is the problem and it's the cause of violence, in order to move away from that and overcome that violence that is so innate to us, we have to have a new heart. And the way that God was able to cause that to happen was by sending his son Jesus into this violent world in order to be exposed to violence and even killed by it so that he might ultimately destroy and overcome violence once and for all you see here's the thing in order to evaluate and judge a worldview you have to evaluate it not on the failures of the followers of that worldview but on what the worldview teaches and I even think on how the founder of the worldview lived it out themselves and when you evaluate the life of Mohammed you will see that he both taught and he lived out violence and injustice When you evaluate atheism and therefore evolution, you will see that evolution itself is a violent process. That is the natural order. It is violent. But not only that, but it can't speak to the moral rightness or wrongness of violence in any way, and therefore it can do nothing to curb it or overcome it. As much as Richard Dawkins wants a world like what he describes, his worldview does not provide the power or the the ability to to cause that to happen. Whereas when you look at both the teachings and the life of Jesus, you see him over and over again condemn violence, and you even see him die himself violently so as to overcome it. I mean, Jesus Christ is the one who, in a very radical way, said this in Matthew 5.38, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. He also said, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, not only did Jesus teach nonviolence, he also lived it out. Ravi mentioned that in his quote, but when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, one of his disciples pulled out a knife and cut off the high priest's servant's ear. And what did Jesus do in that moment? Well, first he turned and he rebuked that disciple and he told him to put your sword away. He said, put your swords away for all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Do you not know, do not think do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? He's just saying, look, I don't need you to defend me. My father can dispatch angels and these guys would be gone, right? But he doesn't do it. He says, similar to Pilate at his trial, he says this in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my But now my kingdom is from another place. You see, Jesus at every turn, both in his life and in his teachings, taught and lived out nonviolence. And it wasn't because he was weak, right? We often think people who embrace nonviolence are weak. They're, you know, well, you don't like fighting because you would lose every fight, right? That's not true of Jesus. It wasn't because he was weak, but it was actually because he was strong. And he calls you and me as his followers to do the same. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book Confronting Christianity sums it up this way, and, and I'm with this I'm gonna close. Staked at the heart of, uh, of Christianity is a symbol of extreme violence. The brutal, torturous, state-sponsored execution of an innocent man. Christians believe that this execution was orchestrated by God Himself. Some argue from this that Christianity glorifies violence, but the meaning of the cross is precisely the opposite. Violence is the use of power by the strong to hurt the weak. At the cross, the most powerful man who ever lived submitted to the most brutal death ever died to save the powerless. Christianity does not glorify violence, it humiliates it. The skewering, the, the skewering of violence at the cross speaks to our most fundamental problem, which is not lack of education or democracy or the opportunity or opportunity, but the gruesome reality of what the Bible calls sin. And the strange claim of Jesus' resurrection offers us a hope that evil will not ultimately triumph and that anyone who gives up his or her life to follow Christ will find it. This belief, when drunk of deeply, motivates action. It motivated Christians in the fourth century to, comp- to create places where the sick and poor could be cared for, places where we now call hospitals. It motivated Martin Luther King to believe that nonviolent resistance could overcome violent oppression. And it motivates Christians today to sacrifice themselves across the world in service for others. And so, as we can cl- conclude here, And as we once again think about this question, this objection, doesn't religion, or more specifically, doesn't Christianity cause violence? I think the answer both historically and philosophically is a resounding no. Christianity not only doesn't lead to or cause violence, but it actually is the only hope we have for living in a world without it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Lord, thank you that on this question, this challenge of of doesn't Christianity lead to violence, Lord, thank you that when we read your scriptures, thank you that when we look at the life of Jesus and both what he taught and what he lived out, Lord, the answer is no. Lord, you hate violence. You hate seeing what human beings are capable of, what they do to each other when they're full of selfishness. Lord, you could have just left us. When you created the world, you could have just, in the days of Noah, just left us to ourselves, Lord, and we probably would have just wiped each other out. But in your love, in your compassion, Lord, no, you enacted a plan to redeem the world. A plan to once and for all demolish violence. to once again, create shalom. To take us back to the garden, Lord, that place where we have perfect harmony in unity with you and with one another. Lord, we long for that day, Lord. We are grieved by the violence we see in the world. We're grieved by the violence we see in our own hearts. Holy Spirit, I just ask now you would help us as followers of Christ, Lord, for those of us who name the name of Christ, Lord, would you begin to crucify the violence that's still in our own hearts. Help us to live out and to follow Jesus. Ask this in his name. Amen.